if you ask someone what's your strategy, you'll sometimes hear our strategy is to increase revenue by 5% or increase retention by 10%. And that's not really a strategy. That's a goal. And it's great to achieve that goal, but only if it is actually accretive to the strategy that the company is trying to advance. And so I often see teams get into a mode where they're just doing anything and everything to move the goal, and they sometimes lose that check and you know might actually head in the wrong direction from a strategic standpoint in terms of creating long-term value with the goal of trying to hit their short-term targets. Welcome to In-Depth, a new show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, their companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. Through over 400 interviews on the review, we've shared standout company building advice, the kind that comes from those willing to skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. With our new podcast, In-Depth, you can listen in to these deeper conversations every single week. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. For today's episode of In-Depth, I am really excited to be joined by Ravi Mehta. Ravi was formerly the chief product officer at Tinder and taught product strategy as an executive in residence at Reforge, which is a cohort-based content program. In today's conversation, we dive exceptionally deep into product strategy, starting with what Ravi sees as the most common disconnect between product strategy and what product teams actually work on day to day. In the bulk of our discussion, we walk through the core tenets of what he calls the product strategy stack, which includes company mission, company strategy, product strategy, product roadmap, and product goals. Ravi explains how the idea behind the product strategy stack became more clearly crystallized in his role at TripAdvisor as the VP of Consumer Product. And he's got plenty of crisp stories that help put these fuzzy concepts into practice. Along the way, he also flags some of the most common missteps he sees folks make when crafting and executing their product strategy. Next, he unpacks his alternative approach to OKRs, called NCTs. He makes the case that outlining narratives, commitments, and tasks sidesteps some of the most common headaches when it comes to OKRs, and gives suggestions for implementing NCTs within your own product teams. Strategy is often misunderstood and has come to mean all sorts of different things. What struck me about Ravi is how clearly he's able to articulate these amorphous ideas like mission or vision. He's also got plenty of examples from his own career at TripAdvisor and Tinder, plus his work as an advisor for other fast-growing startups. I hope you enjoy the episode and now my conversation with Ravi. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Brett, for having me. So you've written and shared some different ideas about this, but I wanted to start at the top by just asking the question of, in your eyes, what is product strategy? Why does it matter? And what do people often screw up as it relates to product strategy? Yeah, definitely. So I think about product strategy as the connective tissue between what a product team is doing day to day and what the ambitions of a company are. And so there's really three pieces there. The first one is having a very clear understanding of 
what is the mission and the strategy of the company that you're a part of? Increasingly, as companies have gotten more and more product-oriented and product-centric, you know, product strategy accounts for a really big percentage of the overall company strategy, but it's not the whole thing. A product strategy needs to fit really nicely into the broader ambitions of the company. It needs to plug into what's happening on the marketing side, on the sales side, on the technology side. And so it's one piece of a broader puzzle in terms of that overall ambition that the company has. And then there's the day-to-day execution. There's the roadmap and the goal setting. And oftentimes what I see in companies is actually that those two can be somewhat disconnected. Teams can get very much in the mode of, we need to hit our OKRs, we need to achieve our goals. Some of that can be performance review related. And oftentimes in the drive to hit goals, teams focus too much on the goals and not enough on the strategy and whether or not they're making progress on that strategy. And so the product strategy is really the connective tissue between the two. And it's meant to tether those two together so that as a team is making progress on its goals and creating roadmaps, that it's doing it with insight into the broader objectives and in a way that's making progress against those broader objectives. And so that really highlights one of the key, most common failure modes that I see for teams, especially today when there's so much data to work with and there's so much emphasis on goals, is an overemphasis on goals and an underemphasis on strategy. And we can get into this a little bit more, but I think oftentimes teams conflate the two. If you ask someone, what's your strategy? You'll sometimes hear, our strategy is to increase revenue by 5% or increase retention by 10%. And that's not really a strategy, that's a goal. And it's great to achieve that goal, but only if it is actually accretive to the strategy that the company is trying to advance. And so, you know, I often see teams get into a mode where they're just doing anything and everything to move the goal, and they sometimes lose that check and, you know, might actually head in the wrong direction from a strategic standpoint in terms of creating long-term value with the goal of trying to hit their short-term targets. So let's say you're the CEO of a hundred person company. There's some level of product market fit and scaling. What is their self-diagnostic that they're running to understand if they potentially have a product strategy problem? There's a number of ways in which product strategy problems surface, and they don't surface at a strategic level. They actually surface at an execution level. So one of the most common things I see is that teams have a hard time prioritizing. There will be, as part of the roadmap, a question of, should we do feature A or should we do feature B? And teams have a hard time making that decision, not because of any sort of opportunity sizing around those features, but because there's no context within which they're making that decision. So the first thing that I look for is individual teams that are having a hard time prioritizing. You can often track that back to a strategy problem. The second thing that I see very often is a muddy user experience. And so when teams are really optimizing for goals at the expense of strategy, there comes this tendency to want to put more and more into the product to really pull the user's attention to the things that are the most important things in terms of those goals. And you end up in some products getting sort of a Vegas effect where there's just so many flashing lights, so many signs, so many things for a user to pay attention to because each team in its own isolated way is trying to grab the user's attention that ultimately the overall product experience doesn't hang together and doesn't provide a clear, elegant experience that is thoughtful about where they want the user's attention to be so that they're getting maximum value from the product. There's other things like difficulty opportunity sizing that are also symptomatic. But oftentimes, you know, when a company is trying to diagnose that, 
the important thing is not to go high level, but really go deep and understand what are the teams doing? How are they making decisions? How are those decisions manifesting in the in the product? And does it feel like those decisions are aligned towards that short term? Or does it feel like they're laddering up to a long term objective? Do you think about the idea of product strategy differently depending on the company's maturity or the tenants identical if you're three people building your first product or maybe a thousand people with seven products? I think the tenants are the same. The cycle time is different. So the core elements of product strategy, I think, starts with a very clear understanding of a company mission and company strategy. And often for a smaller company, this is where the smaller companies excel because at the time that you're starting a company, there's not a lot of data to work with. There's not a lot of customers to surface. There's not specific metrics that the team is responsible for moving or quarterly board cycle or quarterly earnings. And so teams at that point have both the luxury and the necessity of focusing at that high level. What is our vision of what the world will be if we change the world with our product? And what are the things that we need to do strategically in order to do that? When a company is small, the only way you can really win and disrupt in a space where there's a lot of incumbents is to think strategically and think about your relative advantages. And then the next step is really to understand, okay, now we know what we're trying to accomplish from a mission and a company strategy standpoint. How does our product fit into that? What is the product strategy? How do we sequence that over time? How do we measure whether or not the hypotheses that we've made are the right ones? And so the overall process is the same. But the rate at which companies go through that process and change it can be pretty different. And so at a startup where you're accumulating a lot of information very quickly about who your customers are, what the user value is that you're trying to solve for, then it makes sense to continually revisit the mission and the strategy to make sure that it's the right one based on what you're learning. And then as companies get bigger, there's more of an established process. There's an established culture. You know, there's oftentimes quarterly business reviews. So then this strategic process fits within something that has a cycle time more on a quarter or half year basis. But I think the fundamentals are the same. It's really the speed that is different. You hinted at this a little bit, but let's talk about your idea of the product strategy stack, your answer to what are the pieces of a great product strategy? Maybe we could start by walking through them. I think a starting point is that strategy is often misunderstood. Strategy is a little bit like growth. Everyone wants strategy. Everyone wants growth. And because of that, as a result, teams aren't always crisp about what do they mean by strategy and what are the different components strategy. And so one of the things that I thought a lot about is how do you divide the different elements of strategy into distinct concepts that interrelate and create a system that people can use to go through that process of defining mission and then ending up in a clear set of goals that are framed by that mission. And so the product strategy stack is our attempt at Reforge to do that. We published an article, I think about a year ago, that defines the product strategy stack in terms of five elements. The top element is the mission. So the mission is ultimately the change the company wants to bring to the world. Some companies use both a vision and a mission. I tend to think about those as as similar. And so they operate at the same level within the stack. They really set the framing. Then is the company strategy. And so that is the very logical 
well-reasoned plan that the company has to turn that mission into being. I think as an industry, we put a lot of emphasis on goals and things that are measurable. And strategy is actually much more of a logical process. And so it can be measured, but it's also important to appeal to a sense of reason, to be really clear about what are the advantages that a company has and how are you going to use those advantages to accomplish what you need to, especially in really competitive markets. And so the company level mission, the company level strategy work together to provide that overall framing. And once you have those in place, then you've got the context you need to have in order to define the product strategy. And the product strategy is really the plan for how a product will drive its particular part of the company strategy. So how does it fit within that overall ambition that the company has? And then flowing from the product strategy is the next level of the product strategy stack, which is the roadmap. And so the roadmap is the sequence of specific features or initiatives that implement the product strategy over time. And an important part of product strategy planning is making sure that the roadmap is sequenced in a way that the company learns as quickly as possible and is able to drive impact as quickly as possible. And then the final, the foundation of the product strategy stack are the goals. And those are the outcomes of the roadmap that measure whether or not you're making progress on strategy. And so a controversial point here is we say as part of this product strategy stack that goals should actually come from roadmaps rather than roadmaps coming from goals. And that's opposite to the way a lot of companies work. In many cases, companies say our goal is to increase retention by 10%, and then the team will develop a roadmap to try to achieve that goal. But a common pattern that I've seen with teams that do that is they end up focusing on the things that will move the needle the most in the short term rather than the things that are the right long-term decision for the business. And so we recommend people come up with the roadmap and then figure out the goals that are aligned with that roadmap. And an analogy I, I like to use to help illustrate that point is if we say, you know, we want to go on a trip from Los Angeles to Vegas, our destination is Vegas. One of the goals, one of the key progress indicators that we'll have on that trip is the number of miles driven. But that's not sufficient in and of itself for us to reach our destination. We can move 200 miles in the right direction, but we can also move 200 miles in the wrong direction. And so in both cases, we've achieved our goal, but we haven't necessarily made progress on the ultimate outcome that we want. And so it's really important to make sure that goals are, are well-defined relative to the strategy and that the team doesn't overly focus on those goals at the expense of that long-term destination that the company wants to achieve. How does your worldview fit into the conversation that you hear a lot recently, which is the idea of focusing on inputs versus outputs? The ideal way to approach company building is to be much more focused on controllable inputs as opposed to being obsessed with outputs. I very much believe that that is an important approach. I like this idea that the score takes care of itself, that if you focus on the fundamentals and doing those fundamentals well then the long-term trailing indicators, whether it's growth or revenue or retention, will flow from that. But if you overly focus on winning the game, sometimes you can miss the important details that are necessary in order to actually get the team to the point where they can win the game. And so we actually reference in the product leadership program, the score takes care of itself book as a way to highlight that the inputs are really important. And one of the things the product strategy stack is trying to solve for people is to take the emphasis away from the goals, away from the outputs and the outcomes, and put it more on what exactly is the team trying to achieve and how do you put together a plan 
to achieve that. And that's the reason that goals are at the foundation rather than at the top. And so the mission, the company strategy are these incredibly important inputs into that process. They provide the context and the guardrails. And what we want to ultimately do is measure our progress against that using the goals rather than treat the goals or those measurable outcomes as the destination themselves. How do you think this model works when you're a mono product company? It sort of makes sense how this might work. How does it fit into multi-product or multi-business unit? Yeah, it's a really good question. I tend to think at a high level from a corporate strategy perspective, companies can think about themselves in three different ways. You can think about yourself as a product company, oftentimes a mono product company. And in that case, you know, the mission and the company strategy are really clear. They're, they're very similar to the product strategy. The next step is to think about the company as a portfolio. And in that case, you have a portfolio of distinct products, which I think are ideally trying to accomplish different elements of a mission. And so then the mission is defined really nicely relative to the goals of that portfolio. You know, as a tech industry, I actually think too many companies focus on a product strategy and not enough on a portfolio strategy. I think a good example of a company that's done a great job with a portfolio strategy is Match Group. Match Group is the owner of Tinder, Hinge, OkCupid, Plenty of Fish, Match.com, international dating sites as well. And so the company years ago made a bet on the online dating sector and said, ultimately, more and more people are going to meet online. There's lots of different use cases to solve there. The right way to approach this market is not to create the ultimate Uber product that is going to solve all of those things, but to craft very thoughtfully a portfolio that solves for different use cases in different regions with different business models. And today, something like 80% or, or more of the revenue within online dating is generated by Match Group because of that really thoughtful portfolio-oriented approach. And so you have a product-oriented approach, a portfolio-oriented approach. And I think the final and most powerful approach is a platform approach. So with a portfolio approach, you're really saying you as a business are going to be responsible for creating the portfolio of products that ultimately drive progress for the business or growth for the business. And then a platform approach, I think, is the most scalable where you're saying, ultimately, we're going to create a platform where other people can actually add value to the product that we're creating. And of course, the biggest companies are the companies that have done a fantastic job of creating platforms, whether that's Apple or Google or others. And so that process of thinking about, you know, what is our company strategy? Is it a product approach, a portfolio approach, or a platform approach is really important. And ultimately, that's a key thing that will determine product strategy and help people understand where should we be investing. Because oftentimes when you're implementing a portfolio approach or a platform approach, the right thing is not to optimize for short-term goals that can actually undermine that long-term approach that you're trying to create. So just to go off this tangent for maybe a couple minutes, and then I want to come back to the product strategy stack when you talk about platform portfolio, et cetera. Why do you think so few companies are good at executing multi-product, multi-business unit strategies as they scale? And I'd say what you tend to see is whatever the main thing was when it was a six-month-old company with early product market fit tends to kind of be the main thing seven years later. And at the same time, when you reverse engineer the generational companies, they either build or buy them their way into multi-product, multi-business unit. And then there are just the most incredible examples of Microsoft and others that have done a bit of both. But when you actually look at the business, it's actually quite diversified. And in its terminal state, it almost tends to look more like a conglomerate 
but so few companies are able to get past their first product and end up sort of being this some version of a one-trick pony. And I'm curious what your observations there have been. I think that this has to do with the culture around founders and how we think about founders. And so oftentimes the founders who get rewarded, who are able to grow early, have a specific idea of the thing that they want to build. And so their intuition is really tuned to building one thing in particular rather than creating a conglomerate. You see that pattern repeat itself. And it's an incredibly successful pattern that the founders that have a fantastic intuition about the product that they want to build are very successful. But that intuition, the rewards that drive that intuition, the inputs into really growing that intuition into the biggest possible business don't necessarily lead to a founder saying, okay, now I need to focus on the next thing. And I think this happens even with companies that are very big. When I was at Facebook, Mark still spent the majority of his quarterly business review time focused on Facebook and not as much on Instagram and WhatsApp when it was increasingly clear that Instagram and WhatsApp were big and fast growing parts of the Facebook portfolio. And so it took the company a very significant shift to go from being a product oriented business to much more of a portfolio oriented business. And that was pretty late. Facebook was always already very large at the time. And so I think the founders that have been the most successful in terms of creating portfolios, creating conglomerates, their intuition is not entirely tied to the product that they want to create. It's tied to the way that they think. And so I think the very best example of a portfolio-driven company and ultimately a platform-driven company is Amazon. And so Amazon has basically throughout the culture um, taken Jeff Bezos's intuition about how to think about product problems and embedded that into the culture. And so rather than individual teams being tied to one person's vision for the product, they are tied to a way of thinking, and that has enabled them to grow their portfolio very quickly. And so I think for founders that are looking to make that shift from being product-centric to being much more portfolio-centric, it's important to understand their role in creating the culture and really facilitating that culture to start to think differently about growth outside of the context of the product. And in order to do that, really good founding CEOs I think need to be very thoughtful about how they think and helping other teams in the company think in that way, rather than being ultimately the decider on key matters. If one person is the decider on key matters, oftentimes that leads to a single product mentality. Yeah. With Amazon, it's also, it's impressive how much they built themselves versus someone like Facebook who has backed into a multi-product strategy, but is, is almost entirely through acquisition is kind of another interesting difference between someone like Amazon and someone like Facebook. And I guess the lesson there is both can work. Salesforce is another example of a company who's bought their way into an incredible portfolio of products and just done such a good job at that. But it is different and all the more impressive what Amazon. And I'd argue also what Microsoft has done over the last 20 or 30 years is probably maybe more underappreciated as it relates to building a diverse set of revenue streams. The other difference I noticed during my time at Match versus at Facebook or other companies like TripAdvisor is that the way in which the CEOs think about the business and their interface into the business is different. You know, at Facebook, the, the CEOs and the executives interface into the business, and this is true of most tech companies, is primarily oriented around product metrics. Whereas at Match and at IAC, the interface into the business was primarily oriented around financial metrics, some of which were, of course, driven by product metrics. There was this subtle shift in 
what are the things that we talk about? And as a result, there was a shift in how do you optimize for those? And if you're really focused on product metrics, that leads you to think about the solution in terms of the product that you're working on. If you're focused on financial metrics, that leads you to think about you know, what are the things that we can do to expand not just a single product business, but expand that portfolio. So coming back to the product strategy stack that you outlined in terms of company mission, company strategy, product strategy, product roadmap, and product goals, could you bring it to life and kind of tell us a story about what this looks like when it's done really, really well? Definitely. So the thing that starts to lead me to defining these ideas and the way that they relate together was a project that we worked on at TripAdvisor in around the 2015-2016 timeframe. TripAdvisor had gone through a few different strategic transitions, really as part of the sequence of moving from a very review-oriented, content-driven business to much more of a transactional marketplace. And so TripAdvisor had added the ability to book hotels directly on the site. Do you mind for those that aren't as familiar with TripAdvisor, it's a pretty fascinating company, but maybe talk in a little bit more detail about what it started out as in terms of reviews, just so that people have that base level context. Yeah, absolutely. So TripAdvisor is one of these interesting examples of a web one business that has just had fantastic durability over the years. The company was started in 2000, right before September 11th, and was founded on the insight that people were going to start to go less to travel agents and make more of their travel purchases online. The company went through a really tough time after September 11th, similar to, to the pandemic, where the travel industry contracted really quickly. And so Steve, the CEO and the founding team needed to figure out what is the really unique problem that we can solve for people. And they had an insight that if you go into a travel agent's office and ask to book a hotel, you're going to get three brochures. They're going to be different prices, but all of the pictures are going to look the same because every single property is going to be presenting themselves in the best light. And there's almost no signal about why one property is more expensive than another. Every single one of the brochures is beautiful and glossy. And so Steve's insight at the time was that the internet will allow us to make that decision, not just based on what the hotels say about themselves, but based on the reviews and opinions of travelers all around the world. And so TripAdvisor shifted to building one of the original user-generated content systems that allowed anyone to review any place that they visited when they were traveling. This also turned out to be a fantastic driver of SEO. People were creating content on the TripAdvisor platform that TripAdvisor was then indexing through Google, and that led to a massive amount of organic traffic coming into the platform. Hundreds of millions of people still come to TripAdvisor every month to read those reviews and opinions. The way that the company monetized was by essentially selling leads to the online travel agents like Expedia and Booking. And so during the history of TripAdvisor, it was actually acquired by Expedia. And so this business model worked really well with Expedia. They had TripAdvisor as a way to get top of the funnel traffic, and that ultimately they could take that traffic and convert it into hotel bookings. In, uh, I think it was 2012, TripAdvisor was actually rolled out independently from Expedia. And so as a result, TripAdvisor could start thinking about its strategy as an independent company rather than as part of the Expedia group. And it became quickly clear that one of the things TripAdvisor could do to drive 
even more growth was to not be so reliant on Expedia or Booking.com or others for people to book hotels, but actually to enable people to book directly on the platform. And so when TripAdvisor rolled out as an independent company, that led to a multi-year transition from a review-oriented, lead-oriented company at the top of the funnel to the company building out a transactional marketplace where you could go all the way from early consideration on your travel plans to booking not just hotels, but also flights and restaurants and attractions. So a really interesting example of how changes in competition, changes in, in ownership can lead to very different strategies. And so at about the time of this case around 2016, when we were really doing a lot of work to define the product strategy map, one of the teams was responsible for developing the trip planning functionality on TripAdvisor. And trip planning was this notoriously difficult problem. There were many startups that tried and failed to create great trip planning software. What seemed like the case was no matter how much value you provided to people when they were planning their trip, their instinct was to go back to just their notebook or their Google Doc and plan their trip that way. And as a result of people basically planning their trip off of TripAdvisor or not in any sort of central place, Google was really the intermediary during a person's travel planning process. And so people would type in a search result, come into TripAdvisor, read some reviews, then go back to their trip plan, type in some search results and come back to TripAdvisor. So we were seeing people come in and out of TripAdvisor through Google four or five times a day and not really retaining to the product. And so Google was intermediating a lot of the usage of the product. And so what we wanted to do from a strategic standpoint is create a trip planning product that would enable people to plan their trip on TripAdvisor and get them coming back direct. This also dovetails really nicely with the company's mobile strategy. But we also knew that it was a really difficult problem. And so as part of solving for that, we initially were very clear about what was the company strategy? Where was the company going? Why was it going in this direction? What were some of the key factors around changes in SEO that were driving? What were some of the things that we wanted to solve for in terms of ongoing engagement with TripAdvisor? And then that framing was something that the team ultimately used to develop the product strategy. And before we developed the roadmap and the goals, we as a team took about six weeks to say, look, rather than going straight into features, we're going to develop a product strategy document. That's going to be our deliverable. And we put together a cross-functional team that included design, engineering, product. And they put together about a 40-slide deck that included high-level wireframes of exactly what the trip planning experience should look like, not today, not in the next six months, but in a three or four year time horizon. And by doing things in that way, we were able to craft a, a longer term vision that actually turned out to be much better informed, much better tied to what the company was trying to achieve than we would have if we had just jumped into the roadmap and started trying to get more people to plan their trip on TripAdvisor. So in that case, can you help me pick apart the difference between the product strategy there and the product roadmap? Or another way we could explore this is if we use TripAdvisor as a case study, can you walk through what mission, company strategy, product strategy, product roadmap, and product goals looks like in terms of this kind of real world example? Yeah, absolutely. So if we had, I think, taken the normal process, the instinct for the team would have been to look at how people were saving places and try to get people to save more places, then try to ladder that up into people being able to take those safe places and create trip itineraries. And so it would have started from a very bottoms up approach that may or may not have laddered up to a clear 
useful strategy that actually solved for the underlying use case that people needed when they were planning a trip. By starting at the company strategy level and the product strategy level, we took a step back. And rather than just jumping straight into, let's work on this problem, let's start committing to goals and moving those goals, we spent a lot of time talking to customers. So we did a survey with 700 different people to understand trip planning process. We did a lot of one-on-one conversations. And what we found were two really important insights. So one insight that we found was that people didn't approach trip planning as a single player activity. It was an inherently multiplayer activity. And so whether it was you know multiple people adding things to a trip plan and going back and forth, or just a single person needing to get the opinions of other people that they were traveling with, ultimately other people needed to be involved in the trip planning process. And a lot of the other companies that attempted trip planning started with trip planning as a single player activity, and it just didn't work. So as soon as someone needed to share that with other people, They basically stopped using that planning tool and went back to how they were doing things previously. So we realized out of the gate that from a product strategy standpoint, we needed to prioritize social. That needed to be on the early roadmap. The second thing that we realized was that people as part of their planning process are actually compiling lots of different things. They're not just compiling lists of places. And specifically, they're not just a compiling lists of things that are on TripAdvisor. They want to be able, if they find a really cool attraction that's not on TripAdvisor, they want to be able to put that on their plan. If their friend sends them a really great list of things to do in Puerto Rico, they want to have that on their plan. And so a travel plan is not a collection of places as much as it is a collection of all of the different information that a person has gained about a particular destination that helps them go into that destination, feeling like they have the information to have the best possible trip. And so the second thing that we realized, which we wouldn't have realized otherwise, was that the travel plan needed to be open. You needed to be able to put links and notes and things like that into the plan. And if it was only a list of places that you could save, ultimately that wouldn't meet the use case and people would go back to using a Google Doc or using a notebook. So those were a couple of examples of where going really deep with customers helped us define strategic principles like the focus on social, like the focus on being an open platform that ultimately enabled us to create a travel planning solution that actually worked for people's needs. And I think we had a very different outcome than we would have had had we started with the goal of getting more people to save and create trip plans, which ultimately would have led us to focus a lot on acquiring people into that product, but that product would not have been anywhere near as useful and as a result, not have the level of retention that it had as a result. So in this case, can you just do maybe the brief explainer of a TripAdvisor at the time you ended up with mission, company strategy, product strategy, product roadmap, product goals, like how that all fit together in this case study? Yeah, definitely. So the mission of TripAdvisor was, I forget exactly the terms that we used, but to essentially be a place where people could come, rely on the reviews and opinions of other travelers, and ultimately plan the best possible trip. And so a key part of the mission was this idea of people-powered trip planning, that ultimately, when people take a trip, there's a lot of pressure associated with that. It's an expensive activity. It's something you don't get to do all the time. People want to make sure that when they're making decisions, they're making decisions that are going to really pay off. And one of the ways that they can do that, that was uniquely something that TripAdvisor could deliver, was the reviews and opinions of other people. And so at a company mission standpoint, that was really critical and that underpinned trip planning. And so instead of thinking about it just as general trip planning, we really thought about it as people-powered trip planning. The strategy for the company at the time was to enable people to book 
various activities across lots of different things. So not just hotels, but also attractions and restaurants. And so in some ways, the company was creating almost like an Amazon for travel, where you could shop for anything that you would need during your trip. And so that idea of being able to book across a diverse breadth of different types of places was an important part of the company strategy. The product strategy was defined by this idea of being inherently multiplayer out of the gate, as well as being an open platform that people could come to and didn't feel like they needed to stop using if they wanted to save something or add something that was outside of the TripAdvisor ecosystem. And then the roadmap and goals flowed from that. So interestingly, in this case, one of the first things that we realized from a roadmap perspective was we did need to work on enhancing the save system on TripAdvisor because not enough people were using it. But the people who were using it were actually booking at much higher rates. And so you know, our early hypothesis was, can we get more people to save things? And can we, as they save more things, get them to look at those higher rates that we're seeing today? So the first step in our roadmap was pretty similar to, I think, what the first step would have been had we not gone through that process. But we thought about that first step not as a destination in itself, but really as part of the sequence in a much broader set of things. And so we knew based on that first step where we wanted to grow and we created a pretty clear roadmap of things that the team built out over the next few quarters. And if I go back and I look at that strategy doc that we built in 2016 and the trip planning product today that's in the TripAdvisor app, they're pretty similar. There's definitely been continued enhancements, but taking that time to really think about this product strategy stack enabled us to have a set of central hypotheses that proved to be more durable than I think a lot of the typical product that you get from a more experimentation and iteration oriented type of approach, which is not tethered to strategy. So to kind of take a sort of slight turn here, let's say a CEO comes to you and she's running a 50 person company. They have early signs of product market fit and are starting to scale. And they're like, our product planning process and overall the way that we think about strategy is kind of a mess. We read what you wrote about the product strategy stack and we want to implement it. What are some of the perspectives or advice you might give her to do this really well? And when you think across these five component parts that ladder into each other, what are the things that people should be careful of or mindful of as they actually go and try to do this at their own company? I think the first thing is to not assume that certain things are complete. In order to develop a really good, solid strategy that starts at mission and ends at goals, it's helpful to take a fresh look at it. Because oftentimes what's the case is even if a company feels like they have a really good strategy, there may be gaps that the team is hitting. So I recommend if a company feels like they're doing this exercise for the first time and they feel like their product strategy is a mess, start from scratch. So start from first principles and then build your product strategy from there. That can sound really overwhelming, but it doesn't have to be. In fact, I've seen the best product strategy exercises. You can go from essentially a blank slate to a really clear set of goals for the next couple of quarters in about four weeks. And the way that I've approached that in the past is using a sprint-like process where as part of that sprint process, you go and you start at the top of the stack, you start with the mission, and then you define all the way down to the goals for the next couple of quarters. So the first thing is to start from scratch, treat it as something that where you've got a blank slate, you don't need to be tied into any of the work that's been done before. And so you can shed any of the overhang from that old product strategy process that might be a little bit messy. The second thing is to think about it not as a boil the ocean process. I would say both time box it and then content box it. So give it a certain amount of time. I think 
four weeks is plenty for a larger company. For a startup, you could even give it two to three weeks and make that a really key thing that you're focused on intensely during that period of time so that everyone knows that over the next three to four weeks, the thing that's most important for the company is not hitting some goal or shipping some project, but is defining and documenting our product strategy in a clear way. The next thing is to say, look, we're going to have a very particular approach from a content perspective. We're going to come up with a product strategy document, captures our strategy, not just at a high level, but also at a very specific and concrete level. And that document doesn't need to be more than a certain certain length. I think Amazon has done really well with their six pagers. You can accomplish really great things that are documented in a very clear way in a small amount of content. The process I've used is more slide-based because I think wireframes are an important part of product strategy and I can get into get into why. And so the product strategy documents that I've created both at TripAdvisor and, and Tinder and I've helped startups create are usually anywhere from like 25 to maybe 40 slides. Most of those slides are wireframes to really help a company take abstract strategic ideas and think about how to render those ideas into an interface for the user. In terms of what that document should cover, the first one is to have a really clear slide on the company mission. So ultimately, you know, it's not an executable thing. It's not a measurable thing, but having a clear aspirational mission that people get emotionally excited about solving is a really important part, I think, of channeling people's energy. Then I recommend having like one or two slides on the company strategy, which is a very clear, logical plan for how is the company going to achieve that mission? The strategy doesn't need to be pages and pages. You can have a really tight strategy on a single slide if you're very clear about what the plan is and if that plan is well-reasoned. I think it's helpful to have one slide or one page on the target user and the key use cases to make sure that that strategy is really tied back to what the customer needs. Oftentimes with these strategy processes, Another common failure mode is for the company to focus too much on itself and what it wants to achieve and not enough on the user. So having that one dedicated section to the target user and the key use cases is important. I recommend having 10 to 20 wireframes. And the reason I recommend having wireframes is because really good product strategy is not broad and vague. It is, it's big, it's conceptual, it's ambitious, but it's also specific and concrete. A really good product strategy is something that the team needs to be able to execute. And as part of executing that, they need to be able to go back to the strategy and make decisions. And so, you know, it's really easy to come up with a text description of a strategy that everyone walks away from and has a different perspective of what the company is trying to achieve. And when that happens, the, the exercise is of limited value. And so ultimately for most products, for many products, the way that the customer interfaces to the product is through pixels. And wireframes are a great way to capture what the strategy implies for what the product should look like at a high enough level that you're not making decisions about exactly where certain buttons are placed or how they're colored or what the look and feel is, but you are making some structural decisions in a visual way that makes it really clear what those decisions are. A classic example of this is you can have a really broad strategy and today, a lot of products are on mobile. And one of the key things that you need to solve for from a mobile product perspective is what are the four or five things that you're going to have on your navigation bar? You can't have more than that. There's just not the physical real estate. And so companies need to make a strategic decision about how do we want to organize our product and what are the most important things to put in front of 
the user. Oftentimes, if you just describe strategy as text, then teams can walk away with very different understandings of what those trade-offs are. And when a team needs to define their navigation bar, they do it without having a clear understanding of what those assumptions are. If you instead say, as part of the product strategy, we're actually going to wireframe things out, and we're going to define what our core navigation is for the product, then you're not just defining the strategy, but you're also providing a way for the team to think about how to implement that strategy in a structured and concrete way. So once those wireframes are in and they serve as sort of a North Star of how do you actually render that strategy into, into product, the next step is to develop a roadmap. And so those are 90 to 100 day priorities, depending on whether the company is larger or smaller. That is the initial sequence for how you're going to start to build out towards that North Star for what the product looks like. And then I think the final piece is goals. So those are goals for you know, the next quarter. So how are you going to measure progress against your product strategy? Those goals don't necessarily need to be metrics. They can be things like understanding a particular market. They can be things like building out a particular feature or launching a, a feature. So progress on strategy is not necessarily always in terms of metrics. And then a really key part of this is what are the non-goals? So what are we saying explicitly as part of the strategy we're not going to do? That's really helpful for adding that final level of concreteness to the product strategy doc. And I've done this process at multiple companies. I found it's worked well in a repeatable fashion. It's a little bit different than how people typically think about creating product strategy. Wireframes are not normally part of that process, but I found it incredibly effective to do that and something where you can make a lot of progress in a relatively short amount of time. And then that becomes a foundation that then that 50 person company has and can turn to whenever new hires come on board, whenever they grow. And likely that four weeks will pay multiple years of returns in terms of clarity and focus for the company. And what's the cadence on this once you run it once? Is it you're sort of doing mission is every few years company strategies annually and then product strategy roadmap and goals are done more frequently? What's the operating cadence of implementing this? Exactly. So I think that's the right cadence. Missions tend to be something that extend over multiple years. A lot of times startups start with a mission that feels completely out of reach. And that's great. That's important as a way to harness the energy of the company towards a big, important problem. So you don't need to change your mission. And oftentimes companies don't. And when they do, they're changing it because of something that's changed about the world. Both Facebook and Microsoft have changed their missions, but they changed their missions largely because they were able to accomplish their first mission. And so now they needed to reframe it. So missions don't need to change. They can change, but they can be durable for many years, if not forever. Company strategy, companies typically, I think when you're at a larger company, revisit on a yearly basis. That doesn't mean you have to change the strategy on that basis. It just means it's an important to regularly take stock of based on the current environment, based on the things that we're really good at, based on the things our competitors are really good at, should we change our company strategy? Importantly, it's not every quarter. So companies that are changing strategy every month or every quarter are probably thrashing and they're probably in this mode of treating goals too much as strategy and not having a clear enough context for the work. And then in terms of the the roadmap and goals, I think it's really a function of how quickly the company is working, what the cycle times are. Quarterly feels like for an established company that has a large business that's operating, that feels like a good pace. But for a startup, I think thinking about your goals and your roadmap on a monthly basis is beneficial. So let's flip over and talk about maybe how this work connects with OKRs and goal setting and some of the mistakes that you've seen 
particularly around the OKR process. I also feel like more recently there's been this backlash against OKRs and questioning of them. And they kind of were invented by Andy Grove at Intel. Then John Doerr brought them to Google and they fanned out over the technology ecosystem. So curious to hear what you've learned around the OKR process and maybe how that ladders into this product stack idea. Yeah, definitely. Ultimately, I think the OKR process or the goal setting process for a team is a really important part of the strategy process because ultimately it comes down to we've defined a strategy. Now we need to make progress against that strategy in a way that is measurable and evaluable. Some sort of goal setting process is important for that. I've had a long history with OKRs. I actually really like OKRs. I think if you get smart about OKRs, they work really well. The first thing that I think people miss is that goal setting and OKRs in particular are both a skill and a habit. So there's some things that are important to learn about what's an objective. How do you define it really well? What's a key result? How do you define that really well that are important to go through an effective OKR process? I also see that teams tend to want to be great at goal setting and great at OKRs out of the gate. And if that first quarter doesn't go exactly to plan, they keep tweaking and they just churn and churn on the process and eventually point the finger at OKRs and say, look, OKRs are not working for us. And so it's a little bit like going into an exercise program and doing one rep of an exercise and saying, look, that one didn't work. I haven't gotten any more muscle. Let me go on to a different exercise. And so consistency and clarity about what you're trying to accomplish and how to approach OKRs is important. Nevertheless, I've never seen a product team that has been happy with OKRs and not felt like they needed to modify the process in some way. And so over time, as I used OKRs in multiple reps in multiple companies, I realized that there were some common problems to solve. The first one is that the way in which a lot of teams define objectives is not really tied back to strategy very well. Objectives are usually terse. They're kind of like a few words. They often don't look that different than key results. And for people that are really good at OKRs, you'll often hear that the objective is more important than the key results. But if the objective hasn't been defined in a very clear way and is not that meaningfully different than the key results, then that's not helpful. The other thing is I've seen that teams focus a lot on metrics-based key results. And so this leads us into that behavior of treating goals as the destination rather than strategy as the destination. And so when teams go in and they spend all of this trying, trying to achieve their key results and move metrics, and then they come out of that process not feeling like the product is great or not feeling like it solved an important need for the customer, oftentimes they'll blame OKRs for that process. The other challenge that I've seen with OKRs is that the best practice is to set OKRs as aspirational. So a quarter is successful if 50 to 70% of OKRs are completed. I found this is really difficult for product teams to operationalize. This makes OKRs probabilistic. So there's a probability that certain things will get done at the end of the quarter when what teams really want is a goal setting process that's deterministic. And then the last thing that I've seen as a real challenge with OKRs is OKRs, I think, rightfully assume that teams are really thoughtful and effective. And if you give them clear goals, they'll figure out how to get those goals done. And so oftentimes teams spend a lot of time defining their OKRs, but not a lot of time defining it, how they're going to achieve those OKRs. And so they go into a quarter cold. And so they have these really ambitious goals that they need to hit, but they haven't actually planned out what are the tasks that we need to do to hit those goals. So, you know, they've defined the outcomes but they haven't defined the inputs really well. And so that's another common problem that I see with OKRs. 
after seeing this problem multiple times, we developed a, a framework that we first used at TripAdvisor to try to solve for some of these things. It doesn't mean that this framework is better than OKRs, but it does encapsulate some of the solutions that I think are important. And the fact that we're using different terms, I think helps people think about it differently. So we documented this framework in the product leadership program at Reforge, it's called NCTs. And so the idea is that as part of the goal setting, the team needs to find three things, the narratives, the commitments, and then the tasks. So the narrative is similar to the OKR, but teams are specifically recommended to actually make a narrative longer. So use a few sentences to describe what is the strategic narrative that's underpinning the thing that the team is wanting to accomplish. And so the goal there is to create a really clear linkage between the goal that's being set and the strategy that that goal is a part of. The second thing is a commitment. So the word commitment is used very deliberately. So commitment is, you know, generally for a narrative, there's three to five objectively measurable commitments. The commitments are meant to be done with 100% target accuracy. So they're meant to be deterministic so that a team knows what they're committing to at the beginning of a quarter and is doing the things that they need to in order to achieve those commitments. Also important for commitments is commitments can be KPIs, but they can also be things that are more deliverable oriented. And so as part of NCTs, we define three different types of commitments. You can have a think it commitment, which is really about taking time within a quarter to understand and scope out a problem. You can have a build it commitment, which is taking time within a quarter to build an initial version, a prototype or an MVP for a product. And then you can have a launch it commitment, which is about launching that product and learning from experiments, even if you won't necessarily get the results back. And so having the idea of a quantitative commitment or some of these more qualitative commitments gives teams a broader vocabulary of ways to set goals that are not so myopically focused on let's move a metric. And then the final piece is tasks. So task layout, what work might need to be done in order for the team to achieve its commitments and make progress on the narrative. And so Importantly here, tasks are the most fungible piece. They're really there to give people a warm start on making progress on their goals. And if at the end of a quarter, a team has done all of its commitments, so achieved all of its commitments, but done none of the tasks, that's a successful quarter. Those tasks are really just there to provide shape. But if on the other hand, a team has completed all of their tasks, but achieved none of their commitments, that's not a successful quarter. Checking boxes is not success. Really success needs to be evaluated in terms of what the team committed to achieve. So those three pieces work together to solve some of these common problems that I see with OKRs being used on product teams. And does this cascade up and down in the way that OKRs are supposed to, in the sense that there are company OKRs, team OKRs, individual OKRs, or does it fit into an organization differently? I think it fits in differently. So the cascading OKRs, I think, are a good way to think about personal goals and squad level goals and then department level goals, but it can get complicated. And that's one of the areas where I see companies really struggle. Based on my experience on product teams, the level at which goal setting is the most powerful is at the squad level. And so it's really important that that squad, you know, whether it's a two pizza team or a squad or a pod, have a clear set of goals around what are they committing to achieve and what is that going to do for the product strategy? And so specifically NCTs are designed to be set at the squad level and individuals on a team don't have NCTs and then 
collections of squads don't have NCTs. So it's really designed at that level of an organization to make that piece of goal setting very clear. A, a team that consists of multiple squads will have NCTs for each of the squads. And so collectively, you can look at what those NCTs are, summarize what they are to give a tribe level view into what a group of squads are doing. And so it, you, know, you could certainly use them in that way. But the clarity, the focus on this being a tool for product teams was one of the things that I think helped get us to a framework that is more actionable for product teams and solve some of these common problems that product teams have when they implement OKRs, which is more of a generalized goal framework. And could you walk us through an example, you know, either a real or fictitious example, you're a squad and you're getting together and you're putting together your narrative commitments and tasks and what that looks like? Yeah, definitely. So if we go back to the TripAdvisor trip planning example, one of the narrative commitment tasks groups that we had for the first quarter was to say, trip planning really begins with people saving. Today, saving items to a person's wish list is not something that a lot of people are doing. And so we want to increase the prevalence with which people are saving items. And by doing that, we expect to see people coming back to TripAdvisor more often. And so the narrative was ultimately about what is the first thing that we need to do to have a person engage with TripAdvisor in a way that lasts over time and is not limited to engaging with TripAdvisor in a single session. And so enhancing the saves feature had that strategic narrative. I'm not getting exact the words right, but that was the gist of it. And then the team had a set of commitments. Some of those commitments were around, there was some of the code was older on saves. It hadn't been touched for a lot of years. So some of the commitments were really around the technology and around building a better saves infrastructure. But there were also the team within the quarter felt like they could commit to a couple of metrics. And so they made a commitment to increase the number of unique people that saved something to a saves list. And this was not a commitment that we knew we could hit, but the team also wanted to make a commitment that they felt like they could increase the retention for savers. So if they got more people to save, that they could actually, as a result of doing that, get more people to be retained to the product. And so that set of commitments actually was interesting in the sense that, you know, it started with things that the team was 100% knew that they could do, were more qualitative, were things that needed to be done in order to enhance the save feature. And then the team took on a couple of stretch commitments to move metrics within the quarter, knowing that, look, we're going to try to do it if we can't do it then we're going to focus on that in the next quarter. And so not every commitment has to be at a 100%, but knowing what the team is really deterministically able to commit to and what the team is stretching to commit to is an important distinction that you don't get typically with OKRs. And once you establish these different elements that we've been talking about, how do you communicate and update them throughout the quarter or the year. And we talked a little bit about the key output of this first part of the product strategy stack, which is the product strategy doc. But maybe when you leave the sprint process, your product team develops their NCTs, then what happens and what then happens throughout the year to make this both operationalized and to also avoid, I think, a common thing in most companies, which is you do some level of planning and then you kind of forget it or check in at the end of the quarter and see what happens versus using it as a tool to guide your work on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the nice things, and this is true about OKRs as well, but about NCTs is turns out NCTs are a great template for weekly status reports. And so if your status report is nothing other than here's the narrative, here's the commitments, and here's what's changed from week to week, that gets a lot deeper than a lot of status reports. And it makes sure that the work that you did to plan 
what you're doing in the quarter is something that people are reminded of at least on a weekly basis. And then in terms of reporting on NCTs, I think there's two critical things to report on. One is what is the progress? So teams can estimate, are we 50% there for deliverables? Or if it's a quantitative metric, teams can measure how much progress they've made towards that metric. But in addition to measuring progress, which could be an estimate, it could be very specific depending on the commitment. I think it's also important to color code each of the commitments by confidence, anywhere from red to yellow to green, depending on how confident the team is that they're going to be able to hit that commitment by the end of the quarter. And so the combination of a progress estimate plus confidence gives an interesting vocabulary for the team to be able to communicate the status that provides both insight into how things are moving right now and how we expect things to move in the future. And I found that that way of communicating works nicely in a bunch of different contexts. So one of the challenges with qualitative commitments is that they often are not easily measurable within a quarter. There's no linear relationship between the amount of time that's passed in a quarter and how far you've made in terms of progress. So it's a little bit hard just by saying that something is 50% done or 70% done to actually see where the task is. But if the team is also each week making an estimate of how confident that they are that they're going to be able to achieve that commitment by the end of the quarter, then that can become a signal that teams can use to say, look, you know, actually our confidence is eroding over time, even though our progress is improving, what's going on here? Do we maybe make a commitment that, was well, that wasn't well formed or is there some other thing that's happening? Or in other cases, you might have your progress is really low, but your confidence is really high. You know, why does the team have confidence that they are going to be able to hit the goal? And so it creates a really nice set of ideas to be able to talk about what's happening with a goal and start to debug that within the quarter ultimately with the goal of saying, we're not going to hit every commitment. No team is perfect every time. But the the most important thing to do, in addition to setting very clear goals, is to track how they're proceeding in a quarter and to course correct if we need to. And sometimes the course correction is like, we didn't make the right goal. That was the wrong thing to commit to. Our confidence is eroding on it. We're not making a lot of progress. Let's actually eliminate that commitment and focus on something else. Or it could be the team made great progress. They were able to achieve what they needed to very quickly. Now maybe they can add another commitment to the quarter. And so that weekly cadence of looking at that confidence and that progress is a really good way to make sure that those critical conversations are happening. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining and uh, exploring these ideas with us. We so appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me.